Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a founder that I'm super excited to have. Uh, I think that we're gonna be learning quite a bit. I mean, she's been involved with many, many different companies, uh, from employee number three to being, you know, the first person that really starts the thing. Uh, and and I think that you know, like the journey is remarkable. But but I don't want to wait any longer, and I don't want to make any of you wait any longer. So let's welcome our next guest today, Lynn Silly. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So raised in Oklahoma. So how was how was life growing up in in Oklahoma? Well, it was it was all I knew for uh, a significant part of my uh, early life into adulthood, and. I loved it. I mean, it's a very family-oriented uh, community where people take care of, of one another, um, very close-knit. Uh, I will say very conservative, um, which is um, interesting to me as somebody uh, growing up there. And really, uh, I always had a desire to sort of see and know more about the world. But I think in Oklahoma, people people love Oklahoma. They like to stay there, and they're very focused um, on Oklahoma as opposed to they're not as um, generally thinking about the big picture, the big world, because they they really love Oklahoma. So what, what do you think that in your case triggered that drive, that curiosity to, to explore? Because obviously if you did not have that, you would probably still be in Oklahoma today. Yeah. And I, I mean, again, Oklahoma is great, but I, I'm always... I love being steep on the learning curve. And so I always want to know more and I always want to know not only what's going on here, but what's going on over there. And so I, I've just always been uh, very interested in learning everything I can. It's, um, it's what motivates me. It's what uh, is fun for me is to learn, learn new things. And so it was very interesting when I wanted to go to college. Um, my parents would only let me go to the University of Oklahoma because it was 30 minutes from my home and, you know, they, well, they wanted me to get a college education, their goal for me really was to, to get married and have children. And so it was very interesting. Uh, my father told me there's more to learn at that university than you can possibly learn. And that should be great, which was absolutely true. And I had a phenomenal experience at the University of Oklahoma, but, uh, you know, uh, I was a journalism major. I was very interested in, uh, investigative reporting and, uh, 
telling stories about and figuring out what was happening. And I love that. But along the way, I became very interested in uh, medicine and what you could do as a, as a physician. I loved uh, the thought of taking care of people. And so I also, while I was getting my journalism degree, took my pre-med requirements. And I remember going to my parents to tell them that I was going to medical school and they were not happy. They said, you're going to ruin your life. You're never going to get married. You're going to, you should be a nurse, right? That's all, you have tons of opportunity as a nurse. Um, but fortunately, again, I wanted to learn as much as possible and, and I went ahead and went to medical school. That's amazing. And obviously here you have uh, two very powerful things coming together. I mean, one obviously is medicine, which is a bit more technical, but then you have the journalism, you know, which really gives you that edge of being able to to master storytelling. Do you think that gave you an advantage? I believe absolutely it did. And it's interesting in journalism, not only is it storytelling, but you have to do it very quickly. And right, you had I had to learn how to write and express my ideas in a very rapid time frame. So it's been a skill that I have used consistently uh, throughout my, my career. So I've, I've always been grateful for that. So then tell us what happened next, you know, once you decide that medicine is the way to go. Well, I, I was in medical school at the University of Oklahoma as well. And um, my mother died while I was in medical school. And I just really wanted to get out and see the world. I'd been in Oklahoma for so long. And I found this little tiny ad in a journal that talked about a medical student internship at the National Institutes of Health. And I um, convinced a, a faculty member to recommend me and I got it. And it was my first chance to go to Bethesda, Maryland, to the National Institutes of Health, um, to get out of Oklahoma. It was a huge opportunity. And fortunately for me, I met an amazing mentor there who helped me uh, make some connections and get some internships at some other um, medical schools and see the world a little bit. And then I was very, very fortunate, I think a lot because of that experience, um, to get accepted uh, to the internal medicine program at, at Yale and in New Haven, Connecticut. And I, I remember being called into the chief residence office and they told me, we've never had anyone from University of Oklahoma before here. So let us know if you needed any extra help. And I was so intimidated. I knew nobody. I was in, you know, way out of my league. But, um, you know, I just continued to learn everything I could and relied on the people around me to to help me and learn from them as much as I could. And, you know, had an absolutely amazing experience there. And uh, ended up, you know, becoming chief resident myself, which to this day is one of my proudest accomplishments because I think it took the most courage and the most risk to sort of pack up and leave um, and move cross country uh, by yourself and do something that you weren't sure you could actually be successful at because you were sort of in over your head. But I did it. And I think to this day, it's it's given me tremendous confidence. Um, so I, I had a phenomenal experience there. And uh, but one thing I realized I respected, I really respected most the physician scientists, these people who understood medicine bench to bedside. And I'd been a journalism major, so my science wasn't that strong. Um, and so I made a decision to go back in the lab after being, you know, sort of a, a clinically very um, skilled. I went back as a basic scientist uh, and did a clinical and basic science fellowship in endocrinology at the University of California, San Diego, where I really had to go back and, and learn basic science. And I uh, had, a, had a tremendous time there and then stayed on faculty at the University of California, San Diego, in their um, uh, division of endocrinology. 
and then you got an invitation to give a talk that changed everything for you. <laughs> yes, shocked myself and uh, I think shocked everybody who knew me, but I got invited to give a basic science talk at a biotech company in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area known as Chiron Corporation at the time. And I knew nothing about biotech and I thought, oh, well, that'll be good experience for me. So I guess I'll go. And I was just blown away by what I found there. Amazing scientists and physicians who were working together with lots of other people as well, um, you know, manufacturing experts and financial and legal experts to develop new medicines. And they started recruiting me and I suddenly became, you know, really intrigued by this concept that instead of seeing one patient at a time or doing one experiment at a time, you could um, work collaboratively with this cross-functional team to maybe, if you're successful, develop a new medicine, which can benefit hundreds or thousands, or if you're even millions of patients. And I don't know, I, I loved patient care and I loved academic medicine, but I just thought this would be something where I could learn a phenomenal amount and, and maybe add some value and really great value to patients. And so I shocked everybody and, and joined, the, joined Chiron. And Chiron obviously was uh, your immediate step before really looking into the world of, of, of seeing things, you know, like scaling from, from the ground up. No? But, but definitely your, your segue into product health. And, and I believe, obviously, there in Chiron too, you met someone that, uh, that really gave you that, uh, that mindset or, or, or that influence or, or inspiration into the entrepreneurial spirit. David Hung, is that right? That, that's right. And I, I have to um, give two people great credit for that, David Hung and, and Pat Machado, who were both also relatively young in their careers at the time. The three of us met together at Chiron. There was sort of immediate synergy. David was very big thinker and was very much into being entrepreneurial. It would never have occurred to me as, you know, I grew up in a very conservative environment, as you might imagine. And you know, sort of uh, typically went along with the flow, was trying to learn more and do new, th new things. But this idea of starting a company on your own or, or building something from scratch was a little bit new to me or was very new to me. And uh, David uh, left to do this uh, startup known as Product Health and started recruiting. Pat went with him and then he started to recruit me. And I was pretty afraid, I have to confess, right? It was like, wow. That's a big risk. I don't know. And um, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, it was very motivating to me. It was very inspiring what they were trying to do to develop a device to identify women at high risk for breast cancer. And while I was very afraid of my ability to contribute in a small environment, um, I thought, you know what, this is really motivating and could be so important. And so I made a decision not to let fear uh, control me. But to actually, it, it was uh, was smart people doing important things that motivated me. And so I took the risk and I jumped. And um, that's the first of uh, multiple companies now I've uh, been a part of as, as building from uh, very early phases. I was uh, in clinical development there. We, we got our um, device approved with very little investment and, and ultimately sold the company to SciTech Corporation. I think the total investment was maybe $22 million and it sold for $167 million. So it was a, a great outcome financially in many ways. But, you know, we were sort of, you know, we loved working together and loved what we were doing. And so after that company, we sort of said, you know, we're going to get the, the gang back together and, and try and do this, do this again. 
Um, I went on to do, I'd done a lot of, I'd done devices, I'd done early phase development and clinical development phase one and phase two, but I didn't have any phase three clinical trial experience. And so I took a job at a company known as Corgentech that was developing a drug device combination. So took advantage of everything I'd learned to date, but was running large phase three trials. And so I went in as uh, vice president of clinical development there and got phenomenal experience under a great um, CEO. And fortunately, uh, I would say on the positive side, we took the company public while I was there. So I was part of that team and uh, also did a big pharma deal with Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, so we had a lot of great experience there. Ultimately, the clinical trials were not successful, um, but I uh, that was just at the time that my prior uh, uh, team with David Hung and Pat Machado were starting, they had started um, Metivation, and, which is a, a really interesting company that uh, did a reverse merger into a public shell and started to build from there. And I joined them at that time as a third employee. Literally, we had uh, not much, uh, but it, uh, we had a, an Alzheimer's program and then uh, subsequently a prostate cancer program. And I had the amazing experience of being chief medical officer there for um, a decade and got to oversee uh, the development of a very successful prostate cancer drug known as Extandi. And really, we developed that from the very first preclinical experiment all the way through to, to approval. So it was a, an amazing uh, experience. And obviously, a good outcome. $14 billion of an acquisition. So um, not bad at all, you know, and, and it's incredible. You joined there in number three and, and you were all along in the journey. I guess from from such a wild, I mean, because it's wild, I mean, starting number three and then seeing this thing being acquired for $14 billion, what, what, what were your, your major, let's say like your three biggest takeaways from that journey? So, uh, I think the the first thing is uh, you have to be very agile and very resilient, and so and you have to be very committed to the effort. So we had many ups and downs, and there's no any entrepreneur is going to tell you you have to believe in what you're doing uh, and stay with it up and down because this company initially uh, did a big deal with Pfizer uh, for an Alzheimer's drug, and we were in large phase three clinical trials. Um, really, all the early data had looked spectacular, but the initial phase three program in Alzheimer's disease failed, and it was devastating. But we had an amazing team, incredible people, and we had in licensed this prostate cancer drug along the way, and we said, all right, um, we're not going to have a successful um, Alzheimer's program, but we've got this prostate cancer drug, and we retooled ourselves and um, and kept all of our employees, uh, really, the team stayed together, and we were able to successfully develop that and get approval for this uh, blockbuster prostate cancer drug. And so there were dark days, but we did not give up. We stayed together, we collaborated, and we figured out a way. And that, I think the, the number one take-home is really great people is what makes for uh, a successful company. And, you know, that's that's very interesting because I'm sure that there's a lot of um, entrepreneurs that are listening right now that are probably trying to get their product or service to to that adoption, you know, phase to, to product market, you know, fit in. 
and and I'm sure that they're they're going through some dark days and and I guess that you know saying that we did stick together as a team I mean it's easier said than done so what do you think made you all stick together so I think one we believed in what we were doing and that it was important number two we had enormous respect and confidence in one another and I think um, and we also realized that, um, you know, nothing worthwhile is ever easy and you've got to be willing to work through the, the tough, uh, the tough times. And I will tell you when you're doing the startup world, it is crazy and nothing it's, it's, everything can be a little bit tenuous, right? Because if, if it was all set, it wouldn't be a startup, right? It, it's, there is some risk involved and, and you have to really rely on, collaborative decision-making. And I think one thing uh, we had at Motivation, and I'm very proud to say we also have it at my event, is this ability to synergize, to work very closely and collaboratively in a cross-functional way to solve problems. And I think that really, when you've got the right team together that can collaboratively solve problems um, and really synergize, that's when you've got something very special. And I think we had that at Motivation, and and um, I'm very proud to say we also have that at my event. So once, once uh, you know, you were, you were ready to, to obviously, you know, turn page and, and move on to the next chapter, which obviously ended up becoming your next baby, you know, the company that, that you started, uh, obviously during that, that time, you know, you, you were dealing with recruiters too, and they were very surprised when you told them that you were ready to take on a chief executive role. Why was that the case? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting, um, story. So the, you know, one of the things that I became very aware of during my time at Medivation, I would go to the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, which is the biggest sort of life sciences conference. And and as a woman, I would sort of feel like I stood out like a sore thumb. There was just this sea of men in suits. And so even though the workforce in biotech and the life sciences industry is 50% women, when you you know, go to the leadership roles and the C-suite, they're very, very few women and very few women as CEO. And so, you know, I thought a lot about, you know, the, uh, you know, motivation was was a very big success. And, you know, certainly I could have sailed off into the, the sunset, but I really felt like there was an opportunity to help change the face of what leadership looks like. And, and maybe as um, the way I could help diversity from my seat was actually to take on a leadership role because people start to see women in leadership becomes much more commonplace. And for my own case, I will tell you, I was, I got so many offers to be chief medical officer, but I'd been chief medical officer for a decade. I did not get a single offer to be CEO. Nobody, no recruiter came to me and said, oh, I've got this chief executive officer role for you until I'm talking to a recruiter. He's bringing me yet another chief medical officer role. And I said, look, I've got another operating role in me, but only if it's going to be a CEO. He was like, whoa, you know, I was very surprised and um, not, you know, I, I give him huge credit because while he was very surprised, then he started asking me questions. And then once he understood the breadth of my experience, he said, oh, well, let me see what I can do. And then I had no problem. I got multiple offers because I Took, I sort of had the courage, I guess, to self-declare. And if I have one advice for women in particular, we have a tendency to, to wait for things to come to us as opposed to go out and ask for them. And I think even at that senior place in my career, 
I still had to learn that lesson again. But once I self-declared that I was interested in a CEO position, I then did get opportunity. Of course, I have to say the opportunity at, at my event um, came completely by serendipity, as, as many great things do. But um, I had there were a couple of investors um, in Medivation who knew me and knew that I was an endocrinologist. And these uh, two people happened to be uh, one on the board and, and uh, the other, the founder and CEO of Roy Vant Sciences, Vivek Ramaswamy. And they asked me to help them uh, due diligence on a deal they were thinking about doing with Takeda. And Takeda had developed an, an oral GnRH receptor antagonist, which is a medicine or potential medicine they were developing for men with prostate cancer, which is something I knew a lot about because I just uh, overseen the development of a very, very successful prostate cancer drug. But also they were thinking about developing the same uh, medicine for women suffering from endometriosis and uterine fibroids. And what's so interesting is here I am a woman, I'm a physician, and I knew nothing about uterine fibroids and endometriosis because these are largely cared for by gynecologists and interestingly, rarely talked about because it turns out that um, the, they're both period diseases, they're disruptions in the menstrual cycle. So in uterine fibroids, women have tumors in their uterus that cause them to have very, very heavy menstrual bleeding. And in endometriosis, it's a disease, again, that can cause extreme pain during periods and any time during the month. But because women don't talk about things like their periods, it's sort of these two very, very common diseases that are shrouded a little bit in stigma and, and embarrassment. And so um, I had to learn about them. But as I started reading and learning more and more about these diseases, I realized there were millions of women suffering. And I'm not, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, millions of women. And they're getting lots and lots of surgical procedures, hysterectomies. There are 350,000 hysterectomies performed each year for uterine fibroids and endometriosis, which is a huge, it's a major operation. And so I got this opportunity to potentially develop a medicine that women could use as an alternative to some of the surgical procedures they're currently undergoing. And I thought, wow, that's just fantastic. And so with that, um, uh, the in-license of uh, this drug, Reliagolix, from Takeda was complete. And it was a very interesting deal where um, that was led by Roy Van Sciences as the major shareholder. But the, there were two drug candidates that were put into Myavan. And really, money didn't change hands. Uh, Takeda got 12% of Myavan. And the goal was to take the company public. So we formed the company. Really, I became the first employee um, in June of 2016. And in October uh, of that same year, we took the company public and did uh, raise $220 million and the biggest um, biotech IPO of 2016, which was so fantastic because it was built on women's health and prostate cancer. But the women's health indications were got a lot of investor attention. And that's something that you know is not common in the world of investing where the focus so often is oncology or rare disease. And so um, it was great to get the sort of funding that we needed to, to really develop um, this new medicine. Got it. So then obviously this, uh, this Maya band, you definitely started out of your dining room. So, um, so, I mean, it's remarkable that you were in a position to take the company public months after literally forming it. I mean, how were you able to do that? 
It was a wild time. And when you think about that, yes, I was interviewing people at restaurants uh, close to my house or in my home. Um, and we worked in my dining room for, for quite some time. When you think about it, um, suddenly you have to do all sorts of things from finding commercial real estate and, and negotiating that to working with the FDA to get your uh, regulatory plan done to figuring out how to raise money and write the S1 to to take the company public. So it was an enormous effort. I did get support from obviously our major shareholder, Roy Van Sciences. They were very, very helpful um, in the early stages of lifting this company. And then uh, I began recruiting and, and bringing in favors from everybody I had known in my career. And so again, um, the most important ingredient for a successful company is as people in relationships, because they're the ones who help you when you're facing problems you don't know how to solve or need connections to the right answers or, you know, really bringing in those people you'll know you'll be highly synergistic with and can build a company with. So it was a huge lift and has continued to be a huge lift because we, after we took the company public, we had the money we needed to launch five global phase three clinical trials. And I don't, I don't know of another company that sort of popped up as a phase three development company. And really, these were all large trials run globally. So we did one large trial of 900 men with advanced prostate cancer, two um, trials each with 600 women with endometriosis, and then two uh, trials each with just about 400 women and uh, with heavy menstrual bleeding and uterine fibroids. And so all of that got going in 2017 and we enrolled them. And then in 2019, we started rolling out the results. And I'm very proud to say that, um, all of those five phase three clinical trials, um, have now been reported out with very positive, um, results. And we find ourselves, um, in a position where we are seeking um, FDA approval for the prostate cancer drug, um, which is a once-a-day oral therapy um, for men with prostate cancer, where right now they're having to go into the clinic to get injections um, to lower their to lower their testosterone, which is the driver of, of prostate cancer growth. And now we have an oral medicine so they can stay at home, and that is um, has a FDA action or approval date. Um, of December of this year. So we're busy getting ready for commercialization there. And then we have uh, a second um, drug candidate, which is uh, for women with uterine fibroids. And we have that under review by the FDA also and expect an approval action date there in uh, June 1st of 2021. So we're busy now building out the commercial arm of our company and uh, well on our way to preparing for two commercial launches in the next few months. That's fantastic. And obviously, you know, just saying to close up on, on the IPO, I mean, it was the biggest biotech IPO in 2016. So you raised 220 million for that IPO. So, so now that it's public, I mean, how, how much, how much capital has the company raised today? Uh, well, we've been, uh, needless to say with these, uh, large phase three clinical trials and preparing for commercialization, uh, we've raised uh, a lot of a lot of capital, uh, almost close to a um, billion dollars, and we're very. We've got two drugs um, that are each uh, potentially blockbusters. And what's great for us is we now have a, a major shareholder who is uh, the Japanese company Sumitomo Dainippon uh, Pharma and uh, their U.S. subsidiary Sumita Vant, who are. Uh, 
helping, uh, have been very generous in giving us uh, tremendous low interest uh, capital in, uh, in a financial commitment. And so we're very fortunate to be very well funded. That's amazing. Very, very well done, Lynn. So in terms of the, of the culture, why would you say that the culture of my event is so unusual? So, um, you know, it's one of the most fun and uh, exciting parts about getting to start a company because you have a white piece of paper. And uh, the very first person I hired um, was a head of, of HR who to help me build the culture. And so we wanted a very specific kind of company and we wanted a company that was patient centric. So often in this business, you know, we talk about the you know, if you've got a, a sales team, they talk about the customer as the doctor. Or if you've got a medical affairs team, they talk about educating the doctor. But we really wanted to be about the patient. And so from day one, our culture has been patient-centric. And we have three pillars. We have purpose-driven science. We have developed empowering medicines. But we also have transformative advocacy. And these three pillars have been in place from day one, where we really want to engage with the patient communities that we serve. And we do that in a very um, cross-sector way, in a way in which um, we're working with the community to help solve their problems. And so uh, we try to be patient-centric, not in words, but in action. And I can give you a few examples of that, but um, where we, we form these cross-sector coalitions, um, we have one that we call Female Forward Together, we have brought together um, groups that work in different ways, but I'll highlight one, which is a very innovative, innovative digital uh, relationship, which we forged with a, a company called Flow. And Flow has an, an app that they uh, use for women to help track their disease. And it turns out, or their, their not their disease, um, women to track their periods um, and, and actually their reproductive health and, and even through menopause. And we realized that women don't even, because they get so little information and education about their periods, women don't even know what's normal pain during a period and what's abnormal or what's normal bleeding during a period or what might be abnormal and imply a disease that needs to be evaluated. And so we partnered with them and developed, um, they have a period tracking app with um, you know, millions and millions of users. Overall flow, flow now has 36 million users and we've developed a tool for women to track their bleeding on. And so now they have they can have information about their bleeding and also have language to use to talk to their doctors about. So helping to solve a problem that has been, um, you know, gives women more of an empowering voice so they can now have a language and an education with which to go and talk to their doctors about. So that's one example of some of the programs that we do for, for advocacy um, that was really, um, we think, an important uh, part of our business. Absolutely. And, and in terms of the, of the employees, how, how many employees do you have now? Uh, we have uh, over 250. We're rapidly growing because, as I said, we're preparing for um, commercial launch. And so we're uh, rapidly growing over 250 now. We're, we're wow. primarily based in uh, Brisbane, California, just south of San Francisco. But we also have an office in Basel, Switzerland, and now, of course, we have uh, field representatives which are coming on across the, the U.S. Well, what a what a ride! What a ride, Lynn. So, I guess uh, you know one of, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, 
if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, perhaps that younger Lynn that, you know, is thinking about maybe, you know, going and, and being part of a founding team or, or starting something, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now and why before launching a business? I, I think it would be um, think big and don't be afraid of taking risks. You never know how everything's going to work out or all the answers. So if something uh, is important, it's interesting, it motivates you, um, don't limit yourself based upon fear or the fact that maybe you don't know all the answers or how everything is going to work. And there, there are, if you can... Um, I, I think that's the most important thing. Don't let fear make decisions for you. Um, but the number two thing I would also have to say is it's not about the project. It's about the people. So, so often and early in my career is very much about driving forward the project. And then I realized, wow, it's actually the people that are the most important. And so hiring and developing and surrounding yourself with the best people possible is really the secret secret to success. And also any words that you would have for the female founders that are right now listening to us? Uh, be resilient. Uh, ask for help from everybody that you know, because you'll be amazed how many people are willing to help you with those things that you're not sure about if you'll ask. And don't be afraid to ask for what you want. You've got to speak up and, and be accounted for. So I think it is very much um, uh being confident and asking for what you need. And you'll be amazed at the people that will come out um, to support you. But you got to stay with it and persevere. I love it. So, Lynn, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I think LinkedIn, Lynn Seely, S-E-E-L-Y, at My Advanced Sciences. Amazing. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.